Good morning. This is a day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. That shouldn't be hard at Christmas, but yet sometimes it feels like it is, right? Of course, well, yeah. I promised you guys several weeks ago that we would do a deep dive on the term that Jesus most often uses to describe himself, which is the son of man. And today we're going to do that. You'll see the the, the text is kind of centered around John chapter three, verse 14, where he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And then in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that verse, most of us read the Bible so often, or have read it so often rather, that this sentence that Jesus utters, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It just kind of, woof, we just kind of zip right by it. I mean, we've read it a hundred times, many of us. And well, of course, he's referring to his crucifixion, right? He has to be lifted up on the cross, just like the snake in the wilderness was lifted up on a type of cross in Moses' day. So, yeah, it's just, I mean, right? It's just talking about his crucifixion. No big surprise. Except he says the Son of Man has to be crucified. After really delving into this subject of this term that Jesus uses, the Son of Man, This sentence that he utters in this moment in front of Nicodemus is just shocking. I seem like I say this every week. This is stunning. This is unbelievable. Now that I know who this is, what this means when he says son of man, the idea that the son of man must be lifted up on a cross is like, are you kidding me? What? Why? You are the son of man, as I'll explain why. You don't need to be lifted up on a cross. You just think it and whatever it is you want, it's going to happen. You just think it and the entire world changes. Why do you have to be lifted up on a cross? Just use your power and fix it without this cross stuff which makes the temptation by Satan all the more amazing. He really didn't have to go to the cross, but he did anyway. I mean, in a sense, he did. I mean, yes, ontologically, yes, he does have to go to the cross because that's the way it has to be. But from a standpoint of his personhood and who he is, he doesn't have to do this. And so... I just hope that I can convey to you the immensity of this term, son of man. And it's no longer just a phrase that gets used over and over and over in the Gospels. 68 times to be exact in the Gospels does the phrase son of man show up. Most often in the book of Matthew at 28, Mark uses it 15 or 16 times. Luke uses it like 21 times. 
And then John uses it about 13 or 14, maybe 15 times. I mean, John doesn't even use it the most. But then again, that's not really surprising now that I understand what this term means, that Matthew, the gospel written primarily for the Jews, would use it the most of any of the other gospels. Why does Jesus use this term son of man instead of Messiah? Messiah is such an important word in the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. It just seems natural and obvious that that's what Jesus would use for his self-appointed title as Messiah, because that's who he is. Why don't you just, why would you not use that word? Well, it turns out there's actually some very good reasons for him not to use that word. What does it even mean to use that word? To have that title Messiah, what does that even mean? Well, unfortunately, in Jesus' day, it depends on who you ask. During the intertestament period, the time between the end of the Old Testament in Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew, that little single white page in your book represents 400 years. And during that 400-year period, by the time that Jesus is born, there's essentially six different views and definitions of the Messiah and the expectations of the Messiah when he arrives. I've listed them there in the outline in the bulletin for you to look at. The first one, I titled it Messiah Forfeited. This was the result of the failed Maccabean revolts during the intertestinal period. If you're familiar with Jewish history, the term Masada stands out as a critical place. I mean, even today, modern Israel holds up the Jewish resistance at Masada as a beacon for them today in their resistance to the Arab nations around them that want to crush them. And those failed Maccabean revolts to kick the occupiers, Greek and Romans, out. And then the failure of the Hasmonean dynasty of rulers that were supposed to be kind of sort of Jewish, but they ended up being more Roman and Greek than Jewish. Because of all those failures, you had people who had just given up on the Messiah. It's just, hey, he's just not literally a person that's ever going to show up. And here's the other thing. As we go through these six, this isn't just an intellectual exercise of understanding messianic expectations, depending on who you were in the first century in Jewish life. These are us today. Here's the scary thought or the scary reality, not just a scary thought. We can and probably do fall into one of these six traps of thinking about Jesus today. I mean, there's no shortage of individuals. You can probably think of friends or family members who've literally given up on the Messiah. Jesus, I don't know. Maybe Jesus is, maybe he's, I mean, sure he's the son of God and maybe he's coming back like he says in Revelation, but I, I just, you know, I give up. I give up because things aren't going the way they thought they should. You know, that culture's going this direction, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and Jesus still hasn't shown up yet. So I just give up. That was the mindset and the attitude of some of the Jews in that day. They just gave up. Then the, the second one was this idea of a priest and king 
And I mentioned it's proper, you know, it was most popular among the uh, separatist communities like the Qumran, the group that founded, you know, that had and saved and preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls for us today. They looked at the Messiah as this priest and king, you know, which was someone which is very much like the idea of what we see in Hebrews of this great high priest Melchizedek. And then the great king promised in Psalms 2 and 110 all saying that Jesus will be both a priest and king, that this idea that the Messiah would come, he would be both this literal great high priest who is also this great Jewish king. Then the third view was of the warrior king. And this was the one that most was most commonly held among the Jews. It's the one that we most often think of as the messianic expectations when Jesus was born that this David-like warrior is going to show up and he's going to drive the Gentiles out of Judea and then he's going to reestablish the glory day of the David and Solomon dynasties. And the fourth one being this apocalyptic King David. This is the superior divine king who not only ushers in a new age of Israeli glory, but also is God's agent of judgment against the world Kind of like the Jesus of Revelation. And then the fifth view was this idea of the restorer. This is fascinating because this was a view that was held primarily by Samaritans. That the Messiah would be primarily a teacher and restore the ideals of the Mosaic law when he comes. And this just really makes clear and helps understand why the woman at the well in John chapter 4 verse 25 why she refers and talks about the Messiah the way she does as this one who will explain all things when he comes. And the last one, it's one that's kind of popular in our culture and society today, that the Messiah would be just this wise teacher who guides and leads with wisdom and teaching beyond what is a normal man can do. So we see that this idea in Jesus's day that the Messiah, this term Messiah, was completely misunderstood by the majority of the population. I mean, it could mean all kind of multiple things depending on which group of people you were talking to. It had so many meanings and so many different ideas depending on who you asked that it was basically a useless term because you'd have to spend the first 10 minutes after you said it explaining and defining which one you meant. And when that's the case, a term is meaningless and useful in conversation. So Jesus then turns and uses this term son of man to avoid all the misunderstanding that others would decide, well, he is, oh, he said he was a Messiah. So that means he's this. No, that's not what I mean, Jesus says. And so to avoid all that, he just uses the term son of man so that he can define who he is, not other people's preconceived ideas of who he is by using the term Messiah. Okay, well, that explains that question of why he chose that term. But we're still left with a bit of a challenge and a, and a problem. I'm like, okay, so Jesus decides that Son of Man's going to be my title, the name I'm going to use for myself. But what does that mean? What does Jesus mean by the term Son of Man? Well, in some places it's true. In a couple of places in, in the Gospels, he uses that term son of man as a, as just a, a generic term for a mere human. 
places where just in a generic way of saying a human being. But yet those are really easy for us to see, right? It's easy to kind of pick those out. He's not really referring to himself. But the overwhelming majority of the time he uses the term son of man, he's referring to himself. And we can see from the context of the passage or the, or the verses that he's talking about himself by the term son of man. And that when Jesus uses it of himself, though, it is connected a title of deity or one anointed supernaturally for God's purposes. That's the term son of man that he's using. To really grasp that, we need to walk through a few of these passages where Jesus uses it and then understand its origination in the Old Testament and, and how that explains what this means, son of man, and who Jesus really is. And we're going to start with Matthew chapter 9 in verses 2 through 8. I've listed the scriptures for you and I'm got a lot that I want to try to cover, so I'm just going to read through them quickly. If you have a chance to catch up and look at it and read it yourself, that's great. If not, well, then hopefully I'll read it clearly enough that you can grasp what I'm saying. The first one here is this authority over sin in Matthew chapter 9. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes and said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But, contrast, right? But, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Wait, whoa. <sighs> okay, you just, this guy's been paralyzed, and you just, you just miraculously healed him with nothing but saying, Rise and walk. Like Jesus didn't go over and do some medicine man incantation and dance around the guy. And he he didn't, you know, like he didn't create this tincture of something or another from the soil and the trees and the plants and the water from the Sea of Galilee and make this healing potion. He didn't, you know, go over and, you know, sink his claws down into the man's body and transfer power supernaturally from him to the man like some kind of electrical connection. He just said, get up. And then that's all it took? That's all it took was rise and all the nerves that had been severed, the spinal cord pieces that were broken, the vertebrae that had been smashed, the muscles that had atrophied to nothing over the decades. They all just instantly came back to life with nothing but rise. That by itself is like, are you kidding me? What's going on here? But then that's just not enough for Jesus. It's just not enough that he can do a miracle like that with nothing but the words spoken from his mouth. He has to add to it. You're forgiven of all your sins. Oh, and by the way, I want everybody to know in the room here today that I can not only heal this man, I can forgive sins. What? 
Okay. Look, the healing part, we're good with, Jesus. Thank you very much. We like that. But you can forgive sins? Like, who do you think you are? I am the son of man. That's who I am. I have the authority to forgive sins. And here's the proof. Rise. Okay, now what do you do with that? Well, you only got two choices. Call it a a demonic work of miraculous healing or call it the son of God come to earth. Then there's Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, where he shows his authority over the Sabbath. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And then he, Jesus, said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What? what? This one's actually kind of confusing to me. Right? I mean, Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. Like, the ability to forgive sins. I get that. I understand that. That's pretty significant. But Lord of the Sabbath? I'm just not quite catching... I'm, I'm, I'm a little too Gentile-ish to catch this, Jesus. What do you, what, what? What's the purpose of the Sabbath? When God gave the Ten Commandments, he said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What's the purpose of the Sabbath? To worship God. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. So if you're Lord of the worst day to worship God, what? does that mean? You're the Lord of the one to be worshipped? He's the son of man. He's the reason the Sabbath exists. The whole reason for the Sabbath is for him and for us to worship him. Okay, that's not going to go over well in Jerusalem. And it didn't. Then there's Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33, where he shows his authority over the final judgment. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, put the goats on his left. Whoa. So you have the ability to forgive sins and heal. You're the Lord of the day of worship, which means you're the one to be worshiped on the day of worship. And now you're going to be the one who decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Who do you think you are? I am the son of man. 
He is the one who decides our fates, eternal fates. And all that's required to be chosen as one of the sheep, if you remember reading that whole parable of the sheep and the goats, the sheep represent God's people who are chosen for life and eternal glory, and the goats are those who are chosen for eternal damnation. Just to be one of the sheep, all you have to do is believe in him. Believe that he is the son of man. Believe he's who he says he is. I mean, just these three passages from Matthew alone are enough to blow our minds on the term son of man and what this really means and who he's saying he is. But all of those are just icing on the cake to its real meaning of the term son of man. And for that, we have to go to Daniel chapter 7, where son of man is given dominion over all things. In Daniel chapter 7. If you remember, this is a vision that Daniel has while he's standing by the side of the river. And see, this is the part that we most of us miss from Daniel chapter 7. See, we always think about the first eight verses where he sees the four different kingdoms of, of the earth and four animals represented, uh, representing four powerful kings that are going to come onto the earth. And after these kings have come and gone... These dynasties that we now recognize as the Babylonian, Medes and Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, after those dynasties have come and gone, then comes Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 through 10 where the Son of Man appears. And as I looked, thrones were placed before the Ancient of Days as he took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool His throne was fiery flames to its wheels were burning fire. Daniel's describing the heavenly thrones and the ancient of days is God himself. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him and a thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And then jump to verse 13. I saw them in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And verse 14, this is the most important part. This is the, like the most important thing about understanding this title, son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This term son of man is first found here and it's all about who this person is in verse 14 of Daniel chapter 7. So when Jesus says that I am the son of man and the son of man can forgive sins and the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath and the son of man will separate the sheep from the goats along with his angels. He's this guy. All Jesus is going to in the fulfillment of the father glorifying the son is this verse 14. Everything. The being lifted up on the cross That's to get to this place. The coming back in Revelation, that's to get to this place. 
us becoming a kingdom of priests for him is to bring about this dominion and this kingdom. Us being here in this room today and deciding that we're going to follow Jesus and do what he calls us to do, whatever that is, as crazy and goofy as it sounds, is to bring about this everlasting dominion and his kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And just to make sure we get the point, Daniel has a second vision by the river in Daniel chapter 10. Just reading from verses 5 and 6. I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like an appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of a burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. Now, the reason that matters in chapter 10, 5, and 6 of Daniel is because it is repeated almost identically word for word in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It is no coincidence that John, who writes the Gospel of John, who then also writes the revelation of Jesus Christ, within a very short time period between each other, he writes both of these books. It's no coincidence that he describes in his vision, the exact same son of man that Daniel describes in chapter 10, 600 years earlier. The son of man showed up 600 years before Jesus was born. He just waited 600 years to show up in his physical human form to do all the things that the Messiah was called to do that nobody could have ever imagined. Yes, Isaiah 53 contains both the conquering, triumphant, and suffering servant of God. But no one could really make sense of those until after the resurrection. And so, from now on, when you hear the term Son of Man, I hope you remember these two descriptions, Daniel 10 and Revelation 1. That is the description that Jesus chose for himself throughout his Gospels. This man, this all-powerful, overwhelming, in Revelation, what does John do? He falls on his face in verse 17. What does Daniel do in chapter 10? He falls on his face. Every time somebody sees this son of man, they fall on their face scared to death. This is the son of man who has the authority over sins. This is the Jesus who voluntarily got on the cross. This, are you kidding me? This all-powerful super deity 
is going to go to the cross? Are you kidding me? No, no. John and all the other gospel writers are not kidding us. This is the son of man. And this is what he does. As Moses is lifted up on the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'm in awe. I don't even know what to say that this son of man from Daniel and Revelation gets on the cross and he has authority over sins and the Lord of the Sabbath and he's priest and king and he's the apocalyptic David. He's he's all six of the views of the Messiah that they had in Jesus' day and more. I don't even know how you pick a term that controls or encompasses everything he is. It's almost like son of man's not even enough. Like the, even the Daniel and Revelation son of man isn't enough to really describe and say who he is. Which leaves us with this, wow, okay. He's all of those things, right? He's, he's all six views of the Messiah and more. He's the one who created all things and all things are held together by his word. He's the one who considered his deity not something to be cling to, but to set it aside so that he could take on human flesh and know our trials and our troubles as we just sang. He's the one who breathes life into the body, the heart, and the soul from the breath of his voice. So then this raises a couple of questions, at least for me it does, and that's which Jesus are we believing in? Right, we Am I stuck with like, I'm okay. Like, am I stuck with the first four definitions of the Messiah, but I'm having, but I don't see him as five and six. Or maybe I just see him as one or two. Maybe you, I mean, everybody, look, everybody in here is all six views of the Messiah are still around today. And we are as prone to invent the Jesus we want as the people looking for a Messiah in Jesus's day. Right? They decided that they wanted the priest and king down at the Dead Sea, up in Jerusalem, they wanted the warrior king. Over in Samaria, they wanted the restoring truth teller. And Jesus shows up and says, well, yes, I'm that, but I'm more than that. And you're going to take all of me or you're going to take none of me. What? What? I, I, I take all of you or I take none of you? Yeah. I mean, that's not so hard for us to grasp. I don't know about you, but when I was looking for someone to get married to, I wanted them to say yes to all of me, not just the parts that they liked. So I settled for what I could get. 
I mean, hey, you know, guys got to accept his limitations. We want everybody around us to accept all of us or none of us. We don't want them to just take the parts of us they like and accept that. Jesus is no different. All of me or none of me. But that means we got to, that's going to take a lifetime to really grasp. Okay, just, okay, I, I, okay, I'll take all of you, Jesus, but it's going to take me a while to swallow all of that, that you are. And in one sense, we've got until the end of eternity to absorb it all. But for now, here on this earth, are we just trying to pick the pieces of Jesus we like? Or are we really taking the whole Jesus? Jesus is the one that's anointed by the Ancient of Days in Daniel. He's all of this and so much more. I mean, think about this. The Jesus of Daniel 7 and 10 in Revelation 1 actually wants to be my friend. I mean, he just doesn't want to be my all-powerful king who gives good gifts to those who serve him. He actually wants to hang out with me and be friends and enjoy being with each other. Like I can get my, I understand my side of the equation, enjoy being with that Jesus, but why would that Jesus enjoy being with me? But he does just like he does with you. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't, I can't understand that Jesus. I mean, we have no real evidence of human in human history of all powerful kings who enjoyed being with their people. In general, they didn't like it very much and they were looking to get away from them. But Jesus wants to be with his people. And like the Jews of Jesus' day, we, we often have too little of a view of Jesus and he's not too big. After my work here on this son of man phrase, I've come to the conclusion that there's just no way to have too big of a view of Jesus. That it's almost impossible for me to see him in too big and to, to overstate who he is, to overstate my understanding of him. It's always too little, too little. But we see this all powerful figure who has dominion over all things in Daniel and revelation and it just doesn't really fit today. Things just aren't looking like that. I don't know. You noticed, I mean, culture and society is not really that great. And it doesn't look like that Jesus is ruling over it. And you got the mess in Ukraine and everything else wrong with our world. And it's like, well, okay, but this reality... Look, the reality that I live in doesn't match Daniel 7 and Revelation 1 and Daniel 10 and Revelation 1. What am I supposed to do with that? Here's how I've reconciled it. That while we wait for the return of the king, we are living in enemy-occupied territory. That we are essentially like the resistance fighters of Nazi-occupied Europe in World War II. 
that only our war is not with flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities of the air. And unfortunately, this spiritual war takes on physical realities around us. I have to accept the role of a resistance fighter here in Castle Rock. But I'm not fighting against a human occupied. I'm fighting against a demonic occupied territory. And somehow in this upside down world of the gospel, I advanced the kingdom and pushed the occupying forces out by being loving. Wait, what? That's not the way it works, Jesus. You push them out with bullets and tanks and knives and bayonets. That's how you push the occupying force out. But not according to the gospel. It's the gospel of peace, not the gospel of blowtorches. It's the gospel of love, not the gospel of intimidation. That somehow I just have to understand that my war is not against this guy who acts like a turkey all the time, but I'm against the lies and the false belief systems that he believes that cause him to act like a turkey. That my war is against the enemy who has captured his heart. And this is a rescue mission. It's a liberation mission. It's a, it's a prison break. But that shouldn't be so hard because I needed a prison break. I needed a rescue. I was caught in the lies of the enemy. I needed somebody to come rescue me. Yes, Jesus did rescue me, but he did it with flesh and blood coming in the form of human beings that came with the reminder that I am redeemed. I am bought with a price and that I have been set free by the blood of the Lamb. And so in essence, our war of resistance against the demonic forces that occupy our land is really a war of words and a war of ideas, a war of hope for those in hopelessness. But... The problem is wars are messy and it's hard to engage with those who are in hopelessness without some of that hopelessness splattering on me. Then I start to believe it. And so at the same time that I'm battling with one hand to set them free, I'm also battling with the other hand to keep that lie from taking root in my own heart. And that's where we, that's where we stand this Christmas season. We have to fight against the lies that want to take root in our own hearts while warring to set people free from the lies they believe about God and who he is and Jesus and who he is. And we do it in the most odd things, in the most odd way, by showing the love of Jesus. I don't, it makes no sense to me. I don't understand it. And I don't pretend to understand it. 
And I openly confess to you, I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But this is what Jesus says, go do. So I'm going to go do it, even though I don't understand it. And it doesn't make sense to me. And that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to trust him, believe him, and do it even though it doesn't make any sense. Let's pray. Lord, we just don't have a way to understand how you do this, how you work. And Father, I ask that you would just help us Help us just to understand enough so that we can trust you and obey you. That we can just do this thing called show the love of Jesus, even though it doesn't make any sense. And then walk in your ways. Extending the hand of hope while fighting against the lie of hopelessness that would seek to infect our own hearts and minds and souls. And in so doing, Lord, somehow we come closer to you, we walk closer to you, we feel more of your presence, and we see your glory and your beauty in even greater ways, Father. Do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.